Well, good morning again. I have the privilege today once again to um, preach in all three of our buildings, or we don't own the third one, but 1895, this building, 1883, the building right next door, and if you're over at Hope East, uh, good to see you, uh, and then 1875, the building that is built over in uh, the First Baptist Church that we're renting space from for our lower town service, so it's, it's always kind of fun, it's always kind of exhausting, not going to lie, uh, it gets a little, little long, especially when you're really old. No, this is the part when you say, no, no, you're not old. Thank you. Appreciate that, Matthew. Appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, if you're like me, uh, you were a, a little bit perhaps addicted. Uh, I like to call it just a strong interest. But I would, b- before binge watching was even popular, you had to have these crazy things called DVDs or round circle things. And, and 24 episodes would come four to a disc. And uh, I may or may not have watched like eight of them uh, one night while Cor and I were in a hotel room. And I said, just one more disc. And then I watched that disc. And then until like three in the morning, I watched another disc. And if you're like me, and, and this happens, is when you're watching these, you think to yourself, I can save some binge time by skipping the previously on 24 or previously on whatever, right? Because you're thinking, I just watched it. <laughs> big mistake. Why is that a big mistake? Because they want to show you certain things and they're going to build on those certain things next. That's what's happening on that previously thing. And I didn't figure that out. It took me a long time not until I realized what's going on because I'm fast-forwarding past the previously thing. This is a nice way of saying, every time I do a review here of what we've done before, quit complaining. <laughs> We're in a series in the book of Exodus, and I want to do a little previously here just to give you a little bit of where we come from and where we're going today, because today is a big day. I had a, a lot of people tell me last week, they said, oh, it was a good sermon. I said, well, if you, if you mess up the Passover, uh, you, you know, you're, you really, they take away your preacher license. If you mess up the Exodus... Uh, they just, they just, you know, drag you around and tar and feather you behind a horse and buggy or whatever. It's, it's really bad. So I want to do a little bit of previous here as we, we get into this. What is the purpose of the Exodus or what's ever going on? Why, why is this happening? And if you're, if you're brand new with this, you're brand new to the Bible. There's these people that all came out of one guy by the name of Abraham, his offspring, becomes this nation of Israel. They're in a land of Egypt, and they become enslaved. A pharaoh comes along years after they originally got there and is, is now threatened because they, because they become very numerous and puts them into slavery. They do all of the work to try to build up all of the Egyptian things that they got going on. And so... God comes to rescue the Israelites out of this slavery situation. And uh, there's a variety of things that he's going to do. The biggest one is these ten plagues that come in. And before we get to the seventh one, uh, we see this passage in Exodus chapter 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So, and here's the point, you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
The point of what God is doing, even to his adversary, Pharaoh, is to show him himself. And that goes, that same thing is true with the people of Israel. In chapter 10, before the eighth plague, which is going to be the locusts, uh, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and hearts of officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, so that, or that, you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that, and here it is, ding, 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 you may know that I'm the Lord. That's the point. So let's not lose that point. We're going to see that point repeated here all morning. Okay, then, so that takes us through the ten plagues, the tenth of which is the plague which will end all plagues. And this is from last week. And uh, this is, now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and all. This is actually chapter 12. That's a typo. Uh, after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you all completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Uh, so Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any, at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord will make a di makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, go, you and all the people who follow you, go. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Then if we skip down here, uh, in chapter 12, that's where that was from. Sorry about the typo there. But if you skip down, it says, when you enter that land, the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So what do you see here? You see this Passover ceremony. The Passover means that if you were to follow the, the instructions of the Passover or take this lamb uh, and, and sacrifice it, and then you were to uh, put the blood on the door frame of your house, the angel of death or the, 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 the angel of the Lord would, would pass over you and not strike your firstborn dead. That's Passover mercy. But to those who didn't, there was Passover judgment. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. Anyone who didn't do this, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who sat in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well, Pharaoh and his, all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And that's last week. This week, we're going to see the exodus. We're going to see the salvation of God. So we're going to continue on in chapter, in chapter 12. Now, in my, I have a room in, in the basement. We actually uh, took uh, about two years of our life, year and a half of our life or so, and we dug out a crawl space, created this 500 square foot man cave in our, what, you know, kind of continues on in our basement. And in our man cave, there's a variety of things, and it's, 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 you know, we allow, we allow 
some women in, but the, uh, no, we allow everybody in, but it's, it's definitely, uh, definitely a place where the boys and I did a lot of hanging out, especially when they're in high school and all their friends and that kind of a thing. There are two movie posters of the two best movies ever made. Anyone? Braveheart is there. And secondly, I have a signed by the producer, I think slash author, of the second greatest movie ever made, Nacho Libre. There you go. And so I have a signed, uh, it is it's signed by Jared Hess. Uh, and I want to thank, give credit or credits to the Ziegler's for giving this to me. It's the best ever. And Tennille's going, I just wanted that out of my house. I know. But I appreciate it very much. So thank you very much, uh, Ziegler's. Uh, and so, but, but the, the, what's signed is a quote by Jack Black, who plays Nacho in the movie. Uh, and there's a great moment of tension between him and his sidekick, Stephen. My name's Stephen, so I love it. Uh, uh, Stephen, and Steve, Stephen tries to come up to him and have this moment of consolation, and he brings a piece of a corn on a stick, and that's supposed to be it. And of course, Jack Black or Nacho looks at him and says, get that corn out of my face, right? Get that corn out of my face. That's exactly what Pharaoh says. Get those Israelite slaves out of my face. Get out of here. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up. Get out of my face. Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks and herds, if you have said, and just go. And also bless me. Now that's a funny thing to say at first, right? <laughs> at first you just kind of go, that's funny. You're like, by the way, on your way out, can I, could you throw me a little blessing here? Now, that's the way I took it too, and then I did some research on this, and it's actually more than just humorous. It's actually Pharaoh showing that he's bending his knee to Almighty God. Listen to Douglas Stewart on this. This is really good. Why would Pharaoh finally cave in to every demand made by Yahweh on behalf of his people so that he declared them free to leave my people? This, that is, to separate from Egypt and the Egyptians, the very thing the official long-term Egyptian strategy had sought to prevent. Why would he now grant the final freedom that had been denied even after horrendous plagues, a plague of darkness, that of taking your flocks and herds, as you have said. The answer is implied in Pharaoh's request to Moses, quoted at the end of verse 32, and also bless me. In Moses' carefully crafted narrative, the last time an Israelite blessed a Pharaoh was when Jacob, who's Joseph's father, so this would be the end of the book of Genesis, okay, Genesis 47, and Jacob comes to visit his son Joseph, who's at that time buddy-buddy with the Pharaoh. In fact, he's second in command. Was when Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, uh, blessed the Pharaoh whom Joseph served, that's Jacob's son, as a prime minister. That was the last recorded time in Moses' story of the Israelites that the Egyptian king had accepted a blessing from an Israelite, an act that indicated appreciation and respect for the leader of the people who had come to live among the Egyptians. Now this Pharaoh showed by his request that he had made the spiritual, psychological shift, however temporary it might have been. We're going to see, and if you've seen the movie, Pharaoh changes his mind and chases after them uh, to kill them in, on their way out, but not today. Well, okay, spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, to the same sort of position of respect and appreciation for the Israelites as that embodied in their leader. So even Pharaoh says... 
go and I acknowledge, I bend my knee, even just for the moment, to your God. The Israelites are going to leave. They want all the things, and they're getting all the things. The Egyptians urged, this is verse 33 now, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. Ten plagues have happened, and the Egyptian people are saying, you, look, can we help you pack? We'll get some boxes. We'll get a U-Haul. We'll help you guys. Whatever it takes, we're helping you. Or in other words, if you stay here any longer, we're all done. So the Egyptian people also acknowledge the greatness of God. And then it says, so the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. What's this to indicate? They left quickly. They, they're gone. They took off. And then it goes on to say, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians, asked the Egyptians, that's interesting, for articles of silver and gold for, and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them whatever they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Now, this is what happened when an, when, when an army, and this still happens in modern times, when an army comes in and takes over another country, you plunder all their stuff. You take it. You get the goods, right? This is interesting where God comes in and he does the work, and he is the army, so to speak, and the Israelites ask the Egyptians, hey, could, do you mind if we take your stuff? And they say, take our stuff. Isn't that fascinating? That, that, that they're realizing they're so defeated by who this God is, they want them to take their stuff. And if you're wondering how the Israelites make it for all those this time, we're going to see the wanderings in the desert and all the economy that you would have needed, it's because they took the stuff. And then it goes on to give the Exodus account. The Israelites journeyed from Ram Ramses to Succoth. And the only thing we don't know about those two cities is where either one of them are. But other than that, we're good. Uh, <laughs> there were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. I spent an hour on that, and I'm going to give you 10 seconds. The word thousand there probably means thousand. But it's possible, a little bit, that it means like platoons. Why, why, this men on foot thing probably indicates soldiers. So some people, some scholars think that this means 600 platoons of, of uh, soldiers and then the women and the children and the older men and all that kind of thing, right? So if you add that up, some people would say the exodus involves somewhere between 20 and 100,000 people, okay? If you think it means 1,000, which it probably does, the, the survey says 8 out of 10 think it means 1,000, and then it would mean uh, 600,000, which would put the exodus on 2 million. So we know for certain that it's between 20,000 and 2 million. So it's somewhere in there. And some of the, one of the best commentaries I read on this said, and at best we should just be agnostic on this because we're not exactly sure. So, but it's a lot of people. 20,000 is a lot of people. That'd be the minimum, absolute bare minimum. And uh, 2 million would be a lot of people. That'd be a lot of people. So, yeah, I, I'm just going to say that. I kind of lean that it's 2 million uh, just from some other uh, numbers that are later on, but whatever. I don't think anything. It's just saying we all left. Many other people went with them. 
I gave you more than 10 seconds, didn't I? <laughs> I spent an hour on it. I had to. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. When the, with the, the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. What's the big idea here? The big idea is a, we're all leaving. We're all leaving. Many other people went up with them. I'll, I'll show you something just a minute on that. And we left immediately. That's the big idea here. Pastor Tokumba Ademo says this. Uh, the theologian says this. When the people finally left Egypt, they must have felt like they were living a dream. They left from Ramesses, a city they had built. You see that in chapter 1 of the book of Exodus. Heading east towards Succoth. There was a vast number of them, for if we add the uh, probable numbers of women and children, the 600,000 men afoot, it is like there were at least 2 million people who left Egypt. And again, most people lean in on, on that number. Uh, not everyone who was left it, it was an Israelite. This is a fascinating thing. There were a large number of non-Israelites. Some of them were probably members of other minorities who took the opportunity to leave a country where they did not feel welcome or happy. Some may have even been Egyptians who had become dissatisfied with Pharaoh's rule and had become converts to the God of Israel. Fascinating. So it's not just Israelites that leave. These are people that believe, put the blood on the door, and go. And then lastly, we see this. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. couple just quick comments here. So it says here there's 430 years that they were there, and then at the end of the 430 years, and this phrase could be to the very day, or it could be on that very day. Meaning, the end of 430 years, on the very day when this all happened, we left. Okay, could be that. Okay, so either one. Uh, and some translations, if you have a different English translation, they'll say different things there. Uh, all the Lord's divisions left. So everybody leaves. And then it says this, and it's the only application point, if you're looking for an application point out of here, the Lord kept vigil or, or kept a watch over them that night to bring them out of Egypt. And all that night, the Israelites are to keep a watch, to keep vigil, to honor the Lord for generations to come. So that's something we should do as well. Now, where does this come from? Where does this come from? And if you were here way back 15, 16 weeks ago, whatever it was, when we started the book of Exodus... It comes from this promise that was given to the founder of Israel, Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 15, God tells him, your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore. And Abraham believes God. God credits it to him as righteousness, the whole thing. And then, and then God says, you're going to get a land. And Abraham stumbles a little bit on the land. He says, I don't know about the land thing. Somehow the people thing's okay, but the land thing, ah. And he says, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will take possession of it? And the Lord says to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And if you remember, this is an ancient thing called a cutting ceremony, where you would, it's kind of graphic there, sorry, but you cut the animals, and then you would hold hands 
with the person you're making a covenant with, and you'd both walk through the, the pieces, and you would declare, let this be me if I don't follow the covenant, okay? Goes on to say, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and after they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites, there in the land, has not yet reached its full measure." I'll come back to that in just a second. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Who walks through the pieces? God. Who doesn't walk through the pieces? Abraham, taking a nap, right? God walks through the pieces. May this be me if I don't keep my covenant. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Remember, that was the issue. Land from the, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Canaanites, Gigabites, and all the ites. Okay, so back up. Now, why tell him this first part? He didn't ask that. Which is, I didn't ask that. I asked about the land, and the land was fulfilled in the second part, right? Why give him this first part? This is going to happen. God, God does not give unnecessary detail to stuff. And there's a lot of reasons, I think, but I think more than anything, it's to show the faithfulness of God. He is there to say, I want you to know ahead of time, so when it happens, you can look back and say, oh, 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 Mufasa, that, that actually happened. That was awesome. 400 years happens, and we're set free. And that's what is here, the faithfulness of God. God is seldom early, but never late in keeping his promises. Okay, that's our passage for today. That's the Exodus. You might be thinking, wow, we got through that quick. <laughs> that doesn't matter. So, because uh, I want to spend a, a good deal of time on where we're going with this. The Exodus, getting the people out, the release of people, is in the Bible one of the biggest events from Genesis to Revelation. It is huge. I could quote a bunch of passages. I'm going to quote one from the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, when the people of Israel, so fast forward here, they get out, they go into the, the, the desert here, they're going to they're gonna disobey and they're going to spend 40 extra years in the desert before they get starting to take over the land. They finally get into the land, finally become a nation. And over a period of years, they start to become very disobedient, very obstinate people, very opposed to God. And God says, enough, and he takes them out of their land. Then comes, if you keep going in the Old Testament, the major prophets. And the prophets, they are yelling at the folks saying, you need to return to God. And this is Jeremiah, and he's saying a prayer. And here's the prayer. Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power, great power and outstretched arm. So he's talking about God and he's first getting centered. He's talking to God, but he's getting himself centered on how awesome God is. Nothing is too difficult for thee, as the old King James says next, right? You show love to thousands, but you also bring uh, the punishment for the children's parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Because that's what they're experiencing right now. Parents sinned, 
and the kids are living in exile out of the land, right? Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. You perform signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. What does he go back to? He goes back to the plagues. And then he says, you brought your people Israel out of Egypt. That phrase is huge in the Old Testament. You brought them out. With signs and wonders by a mighty hand and outstretched arm with great terror, you gave them this land you had sworn to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do, so you brought all this disaster on them. So, it starts to become clear in the Old Testament that things are not the way God wants them to be for his people and that one day someone is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. Now, it's not Christmas, but I'll give you a little Christmas here, all right? We often uh, say, unto us is born a Savior, right? The angel says that, declares it when Jesus Christ is born. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. It just makes me feel like there's snow on the ground when I read that. I don't know why it is. Uh, maybe it's because it's still winter in Minnesota. Uh, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah or the Christ, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So the Israelite people are thinking, here's the Savior, the Messiah. He's coming. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring us back to the land immediately. And he doesn't do it. He's a huge disappointment for the people of Israel, for those who are not eager to understand the ways of God. Those are saying, we just want the land back. And God's saying, uh, eventually you're going to get land. you got to read the end of the book. It's going to happen one day when new heavens and new earth, all the people of God will get a new land, but not yet now. That's not what I came to save you from. So the question then is, what exactly did, was Jesus Christ a savior of? What does he rescue you from? Right? Uh, saved from what? One of my favorite graffitis uh, when, I, when I was visiting the University of Minnesota uh, uh, back before most of you were born, the, the, uh, which is actually kind of true, the, I remember going into the bathroom and there was a graffiti that said, Jesus saves, big letters. And somebody else had come by afterwards and written, an, ex, an Esposito grabs the rebound and scores. Now, Esposito was a hockey player, so you don't know that. But anyway, uh, and I just thought, that's really funny, okay? I wasn't a Christian at the time. I still think it's funny. I am a Christian. So, uh, so Jesus makes the save, but then somebody else comes and scores. I think to a lot of people, even in our culture, they're saying, what? When you say, I need to get saved, what are you even saying? Saved from what? What am I, what am I in that is, that is causing a problem? And here's the deal. And you might be here today and you might be exploring Christianity. And here's the deal. I want to sell you the bill of goods that you're actually getting. I don't want to sell you the bill of goods 
that you might be thinking you're getting. Let me tell you some things that God does not promise to rescue you from. Does not. Number one, lack of money. Okay? Lack of money. First Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. We came in naked, we're leaving naked. But if we have food and clothing, and I would argue at least some kind of shelter here in Minnesota, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some, money, some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, man of God, flee from all this. So if you're here and you're wondering, I just want all the things. I just want comfort in this life materially. Does Christianity guarantee that? And the answer is clearly no. Now, Christianity is not opposed to having stuff. Paul will say later in, in 1 Timothy 6, God has provided everything for our enjoyment. That's fine. It's fine to have stuff. But if the absence of stuff is leaving you bitter towards God, you realize you're putting on God a demand he never promised you. Second thing, did not promise you, is that your life will be carefree. Your life will be carefree. I become a follower of Jesus, easy life. John 16, I've, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Promises you peace. In this world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. What, what kind of peace is this then? It's the peace that is in the midst of trouble, not the opposite. Wow. So you're saying that the, if, you, if I become a Christian, I'm going to get trouble. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Well, at least I won't be tempted with some of the sins I have. Wrong. In fact, I didn't even know what temptation was until I became a Christian. I just gave into it before. I was like, oh, good, I'll do that. Who cares, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. He's speaking to followers of Jesus here. And God is faithful, will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Endure it. Whoa, that's a huge deal. He's saying there's this temptation and it's gonna be there and it's gonna be real and for the first time in your life, you're gonna say, I think I'm gonna say no to this temptation. Ah, there's this weight of pressure and I need to endure it. That's what, that's what he promises. He promises a way out. He promises there to be with you. That's true. And it's fascinating to read the context of this uh, passage if you get a chance to. He's talking, he uses as an example the people of Israel in this very time when they're being brought out of Egypt. He doesn't promise you money, material possessions. He doesn't promise you carefree life. He doesn't promise you free from temptation. And he doesn't promise you that you will live life pain-free. In the last chapter of the Bible, or the last two chapters of the Bible, I go there often because it's, it's what's coming, but it's, we're not there yet. And it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I'm gonna come back to that later. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more, and here it is, death. So guess what? I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. Everybody in this room is going to die. Sorry, this building's been here since 1895. That one's from 1883. The one over in in, uh, St. Paul, 1873. To the best of my math, everyone who was around the beginning of those buildings, unless you're 123 or 135 or 143, every one of them, we did a survey, 100% of them are dead. Okay, all of them, death, mourning. Why do you mourn? I mourn over people who died. Why? Because I wasn't made to die. I was made in Genesis. It says I was made in the image of God, and I was made to live, and yet people die, and it's always wrong. It always feels wrong. I have this thing at funerals when I hear a well-meaning person saying, well, death is a natural part of life. And I know what they're trying to say, but I just want to punch them in the throat. That'd be totally inappropriate at a funeral, but I just want to. Because it's not a natural part of life. It screams this is unnatural. It's not right that my dad died a year and a half ago. It's not right. Crying. There's something going on where things are not the way they're supposed to be. We live in a world that is not created. It's a fallen world that has sin in it and things are not the right way and pain. I believe in healing. I pray for healing. I have areas in my own life where I've seen God do that. But God never promises that. It's why we call it a miracle and not Tuesday. It, it, God doesn't promise that. Those are false It's a false bill of goods if someone's trying to sell you that, saying, if you just become a follower of Jesus, you'll have all your material possessions, you'll be carefree, you'll have no temptation, and you won't have suffering. (laughs) Now, if you're sitting there going, uh, nobody did this, uh, at least in this room, maybe the other building, I'm out of here. (laughs) What is the point then? What are we rescued from I mean, this is not that good of news. It's the best news available. The the, the question on those four areas is everybody's going to have those. Everybody. The only question you have is are you going to do them with God or without God? That's the question. So what does God, what does Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, what does he rescue us from? This morning... (laughs) This happens. Uh, if, you, if you know uh, Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. Uh, I like my friend Stan who says he's an ESPN. But anyway, that's another. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the, uh, this morning uh, I was struggling with this portion of it, and then I came across an article, and I changed the whole way I wanted to end this message this morning. And I, I, I got, a, got an article by Jen Wilkin. Fantastic article. And I want to just read portions of it to you to close out. What has, what is our exodus? When Jesus Christ came, what, is, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What are the things that are promised to us that we can bank on and say, that's real? And, and, and let me just let her speak. So I was going to kind of, it's just so good. I'm just going to let her speak. And, and she comes out by saying um, that early in her Christian experience, she, she became a Christian. She's raised in the Bible Belt, she says, and, and uh, she became Christian at a young, young age, walked down to the front, you know, did the whole, uh, came down front and all that, gave her life to Christ, and then realized, I still feel kind of the same. I still struggle with some of the same things. What's that about? 
So she says, our problem was this. Our sinning had not ceased with our professions of faith. The salvation that had promised us new life in Christ had, by all appearances, failed to deliver. We still made all the same mistakes, and along the thorny path of adolescence, we added fresh failures to the list. Damning evidence, or so we thought, that we prayed the prayer, we had somehow not done it right. Where was the freedom from sin we had been promised? Looking back, I wondered if, for many of us, our problem was not with salvation itself, with our understanding of how salvation brings freedom. The word salvation is derived from the Exodus account, bringing you out of something. Not until my early 20s did I gain any clarity on this issue. I knew I served a God who was and is and is to come, but I had yet to learn that I possessed from him a salvation of which the same could be said. Salvation from sin can be broken down into three categories. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. That, those are theological words, and she'll explain them here in just a second. For the believer, our justification was. Our sanctification is, and our glorification I'm going to add a little bit here because I think it's important. Is now and is, begins now and is to come, okay? We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. I found this, the, I found the easiest way to understand these three forms of freedom is to remember the three Ps, penalty, power, and presence of sin. What are we rescued from? The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. That's what we're rescued from. That is the bill of goods. That's true, 100%. So I want to give you a couple Bible passages for these, or one or two for each one of these, but I want to let her do the talking about them. First of all, rescued from the penalty of sin. John 3, 16 through 18. Y'all, y'all, maybe you've heard this passage. Even if you don't even know the Bible, you've probably heard this passage. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's important. Jesus doesn't come to condemn. He comes to, to rescue. He's the ultimate Moses. He's the ultimate deliverer. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. What's going on here? Go back to Egypt. You are in Egypt. There is a plague coming. The plague is the penalty of sin. We've all sinned, all of us, and there's a day coming of judgment for that. And the only ones who will be rescued are those who put the blood of another on their doorframe, Jesus, and say, I trust your sacrifice on the cross on my behalf. You did that for me. And if you don't do that, Jesus doesn't come to condemn you. You're already condemned. We've all sinned. You're going to have to pay for that. But if you believe, and that means you trust, that means you place your trust in him, then you're not. In fact, John also goes on so much as to say uh, in 1 John 5, and this is the passage that I just wrote about on my Facebook account and on April 21st, it was marked my 35th anniversary of when I became a follower of Jesus in a shower stall. I know, I, I would account as baptism, but I'm not, a, I, I'm a dunker now, so it doesn't count. But anyway, the uh, inner shower stall is where I trusted Christ, and this passage was the one that someone 
a pastor preached, and I heard him the night before. It says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever puts the, on the, the door frame the blood of Jesus gets passed over. It's not based on how good of a person you are or how smart you are or all that. Nah, nah. It's just who has a son? And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And then he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. You believe, you've put the door, you've put the blood on the door that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. Jen says it this way. When we, come, when we came to saving faith in Christ, confessing our great need of him and asking for forgiveness from the punishment we deserved, we were met with God's unequivocal yes. Since Christ bore the penalty for our sins, we received freedom from that penalty for all sins, past, present, and future. We were justified before God our judge because our penalty had been paid. Those who have been justified never need re-justifying. We can look back to the time of our justification, perhaps written in the front of our Bible, or a day when you remember. Or for some of you, it's not a day. It's a period of time. And if you think that's awkward, I ask people, when I marry couples, I ask them this question. Always do. When did you know that you loved that person enough to want to spend the rest of their lives with them? And for some couples, she'll say, oh, I know it exactly. We were sitting at Caribou, and he had, he got a mocha with foam, and he drank it, and he had a foam mustache. And I said, I'm going to marry this guy. And the guy says, uh, you know, it was somewhere in the winter of 2017, pretty sure. Because I know before I was thinking, no way. And then by Christmas time, I was thinking, maybe. And then by Valentine's Day, when I gave her the ring, I guess it's somewhere in there, right? <laughs> That's conversion, too. That's okay. That's okay. It's some of you are uh, more of a longer story like that. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest conversion stories of all time, says, I can't place it exactly, but I was in a sidecar, weirdest conversion ever. I was in a sidecar of a motorcycle with my brother going to the zoo. And I know when we left, I wasn't a Christian. And when we got there, I was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's, it's all he ever really writes about that. I really want to know, like, what's going through your mind there on the, is this thing going to detach and I'm going to die or what? You know, anyway. Um, and know that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, quoting from Romans 8. Our justif justification is behind us. It is past occurrence. We were saved from sin's Penalty. Second thing, we're rescued from the power of sin. That might feel like, wait a minute, I thought you just said I am going to still be tempted. You are. Romans 6, I encourage you to read all of chapters 6, verses 1 to 14, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to quote the Romans 6, 11 to 14. Paul says, in the same way, and he, he, what he does in the first 10 verses is he talks about Christ's death and resurrection, and as a follower of Jesus, you are unified with him. In his death, which is how when he died, I died. He paid my penalty, so I died. And then when he rose from the dead, I rose to newness of life. That's, that's why we practice baptism by dunking you. It signifies death and resurrection, okay? Uh, in the same way, he says, to what happened there, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves dead to sin. 
Now that's a dumb thing to say to somebody if they never experienced temptation. If you think that's what a Christian is, oh, I must be something wrong with me because I get tempted. Paul is telling you, count yourself dead to that, to, to that temptation. Even though you have temptation. That's amazing. But he says, it, you're dead to it now. You're alive to God. Therefore, don't let sin reign your mortal body. You actually now have authority over it so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of yourself to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Why? Because it's not your master. It's been broken. Those chains have been cut. You are freed. You are out of Egypt. Because you're not under the law but under grace. Here's the deal though. You're out of Egypt, but you're, you're, as you're wandering, you can still hear Pharaoh's voice yelling at you. And you're tempted to want to go back. And Paul says, don't do that. You're not, that's not who you are anymore. Don't do that. You're listening to the old master. You have a new master and it's grace. It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. But you're still tempted. Okay, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not going to stand up here and say, in fact, I, for me, it increased a lot when I became a follower of Jesus. Some areas, whoop, nope, no problem, gone. Other areas, whoa, that's a lot more than it used to be. Jen Wilkin. Now that the grace of God has been set upon us as a permanent seal from 2 Corinthians 1, we are being made new. We are being set free from the power of sin by the power of the Spirit. God's grace is restoring to us a will that wants what he wants. Before we were justified, our broken wills were utterly subject to the power of sin. We chose sin at every turn, even when we made choices that appeared good from an external standpoint, because we had no higher internal purpose than to glorify self. These choices were ultimately sinful as well. They were about me, not about God. No, now the power of sin is broken. Broken. We've been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Though we once chose only to sin, now we have the power and the growing desire to choose righteousness. Jerry Bridges says it in his book. Uh, um, uh, it's in his book. Yep, it's in his book. We did a sermon series on it, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness. He says, don't pray for victory. You already have victory on the cross of Jesus Christ. Pray for obedience. It's like, whoa, I don't like this book. This is, that's convicting. But you're right, the victory has been won. Yes, I want victory over this sin, and I'm, I struggle with this sin, and this is hard for me. It's the way my constitution is made up. This is an, an area the enemy attacks me, but I have victory. I already have victory. I just need now to learn what obedience looks like. We who were once slaves to sin's power are now free to serve God. We don't always use our freedom. We still sin. But over time, we learn increasingly to choose holiness. Why? Because there's no satisfaction in sin. It just doesn't satisfy. It's a, it's a false bill of goods. And it doesn't really satisfy. Only God satisfies. We, uh, we still sin. Oh, yeah. uh, our entire lives from that handwritten date in our Bibles onward are devoted to working out our salvations from salvation, Philippians 2, as we learn to choose righteousness instead of sin, to walk in obedience to God's commands. Our sanctification is ongoing it is a slow-moving growth in holiness. We are being saved from sin's power. It is broken, and we are learning every single day how to apply that brokenness in our lives. That's what you're rescued from. And then lastly, we're, we're rescued from the presence of sin. Now you're thinking, I don't feel that. And that's true in one regard. 
We still live here. But I want you to know that the theme of the Bible is then they will know that I am the Lord, right? And it ends, and I, uh, uh, I we'll get here in just a second, in Revelation, with that same theme. What does Jesus say here in John 17? Uh, when he's, right before he's going to go to the cross, he prays this prayer, and he says, uh, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Okay, so then he defines it. Now, this is eternal life. What is it? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So one thing I want you to get, don't think, that God rescues us, but the ultimate thing is not just, oh, I'm free from sin. And that is true. But that, that's kind of like saying, oh, I got rescued from the darkness and I came somewhere where there wasn't darkness. <laughs> no, you'd say there's sunshine and happiness and rainbows and puppy dogs, right? You would say that's what it is. The thing that you're rescued to is God, right? And you start that right now. Right now you sense that. No, not perfectly. Because we're going to see that. I read this passage before. God's dwelling place, it says in the end of the book, when all things are made new, God's dwelling place is now, not yet, in that way among the people, and he will dwell with them, they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is coming. That is coming. But it starts now. Listen to Jen. We will fight to grow in holiness our entire earthly lives, but when we have run the race and fought the good fight, we'll enter into the presence of the Lord forever. We will be glorified. In his presence, our soul will rest, uh, will, will rest, uh, excuse me. In his presence, our soul rest will at last be complete as sin and its devastation will cease to assail us. There can be no evil in his presence, though now we are surrounded on all sides by sinfulness and living in a fallen world and pain, though now sin continues to cling to our hearts. On a day not too distant, we will go to a place where sin is no more. In our glorification, we will at last be granted freedom from the very presence of sin. Our glorification is coming completely. It starts now, but it's coming completely. It is the day we trade the uh, persistent presence of sin for the perfect presence of the Lord. We will be saved from sin's presence. That, that is what God promises you. He doesn't promise you the other stuff. So let me close this morning as we move to a time of communion. And communion is actually a way that we remember the Passover meal as Christians. This is a way that we keep vigil ourselves. And we say, I need this. Jesus Christ, you are my Moses. You are my rescuer. You are my savior. You are the one who delivers me. And the bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood that was broken for us as our Moses as our deliverer out of sin. But as you're taking communion, I have, I have three things to ask you. First of all, are you rescued? So we have practiced open communion here at Hope. You don't need to be a follower of Jesus. We just ask that you are a rescued one, that you have taken the place in your, or the, the, the 
the position of heart to say yes to Jesus Christ. I put the blood on my doorway. I, that's figuratively obviously, uh, I say yes to Christ as Savior. I trust him and him alone for my salvation. If that's who you are, or if you've just done that 10 seconds ago, you are free to take communion. But secondly, I want to ask you this morning, are you demanding of God things in this exodus which we're part of right now that he has not promised to? Are you angry at God or demanding of him on things that he hasn't said he will take care of? And then lastly, right now, are you enjoying the fruits of your exodus, the penalty, the power, and ultimately the presence of sin and knowing God? Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, it is amazing that we would get a story like the Exodus and then that would become the actual foundation of the story of what you've done for us and that we are uh, people who have been brought out. So Lord God, I pray for everyone in this room. I, I, I pray those, those three things. I pray, first of all, if there's folks in, in these rooms this morning or anyone listening online that, who says, I have not yet trusted Christ as rescuer, that today would be the day. May 6, 2018 would be their day. And they would say yes to Jesus Christ. They would be like C.S. Lewis in, in that, somewhere in that sidecar and just says, I, I, I lay down my will. I trust you. So I pray for that, that you might do that. God, I just acknowledge that my heart often goes to places where I make demands of you in this Exodus. And unfortunately, in the rest of the book of the Exodus, we're going to see the people of Israel making demands on you, things you never promised them. And we do that. We're no better than them. We do the exact same thing. And we grumble. And that word grumble will come up many times and will have pretty significant consequences. So I pray for us right now, God, that you just forgive us. And that right now we get reoriented to what you actually have promised us. And we would enjoy the fruits of those things and not make demands on you that you haven't promised. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.